Assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Greetings and peace, loved ones. I pray you're in a blessed state. You're tuned into Path and Present Podcast, and this is Baraka Blue. Alhamdulillah, um, this podcast is with Dr. Muhammad Rustam, who is a friend of mine and a scholar. He is someone who is a specialist in the mystical, philosophical, philosophical Sufism tradition. Um, he's written about Mullah Sadra, he's written about Ibn al-Arabi in his school, he's written about uh, Mawlana Rumi and the Mazhabi Ishq, the school of love. And he's currently, for the last few years, he's been doing research and writing actually two books on Aina Kuzat Hamadani, who is a predecessor of Rumi and Ibn Arabi in the school of love, who was a student, direct student of Ahmed Ghazali, the brother of Abu Hamid Ghazali. And uh, I know Kuzad is a figure who was hugely influential, especially in the Persian world, but um, there's very little that's been written about him in English. So those works should be really revolutionary in the field. And um, we talk about I know Kuzad in this podcast. I uh, just wanted to give a few updates. So I, we have for Rumi Center for Spirituality and the Arts, we have a couple workshops coming up starting November 3rd. We have a Rabi al-Awwal um, workshop. It's called Drawing Near to the Beloved Poetry and Praise of the Prophet. And this is a, a you know, essentially like a month-long online molid where we study the tradition of praise, poetry of the prophet. You have scholars and poets and musicians all talking about this tradition. We talk about the Sahaba, we talk about Imam Busiri, we talk about how this spread to different regions and the centrality of praising the beloved peace be upon him in general and in poetry in particular and its role throughout uh, Islamic civilization. So we did it last year and it was the inaugural year and it was really powerful and we're going to do it this year as well so you can register on uh, roomycenterworkshops.com and we are happy to have you whether you're a writer or not anyone who loves the beloved peace be upon him it's a really powerful way to to hopefully draw near and increase in love and to commemorate the month of the prophet's birth and then directly after that starting uh, for the month of December, I think December 1st through 31st, we have a, a course about Rumi, and it is entitled The Ocean Within a Drop, um, The Poetry and Philosophy of Molana Rumi. And um, this is a new course that we just developed and recorded in Konya, in Rumi's hometown, and I really think that it's going to be something powerful. Uh, Rumi is beloved to in the East and the West, but as he's become popular, as is very common with things as they become popular, often um, the depth uh, is lacking, right? Things can become superficial. And I think Rumi is one that everyone knows him. He's beloved, you know, best-selling author, but yet there's so much of him that is left to explore. So I really designed the course for those that want to understand his teachings, understand the symbolism, um, reflect on the main themes he uses, the main symbols he uses. What does he mean when he talks about the wine? What does he mean when he talks about the beloved? What does he mean when he, can, when he says, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment? What does he mean when he talks about the partial intellect versus the universal intellect? Um, and... And also, how accurate are these popular translations? So we look at, you know, the literal translations versus some of the popular versions and things like that. So that is also up on RumiCenterWorkshops.com, and you could sign up for those. So join us for the Rabbi Lowell course in November, and join us for the Rumi course in December, um, and we're happy to have you. Um, yeah, that's all I think I wanted to say uh, by way of announcements. As always, we want to thank our supporters on Patreon. They are the reason that you are listening to this. They make this possible. Uh, while it is a labor of love, there's a lot that goes into a podcast. And the Patreon supporters make it possible. Patreon is a site that allows you to support uh, Path and Present uh, with a monthly 
uh, amount and the, of your choosing it can be a dollar a month, can be five, ten, or anything that is uh, within your means. And our page there is patreon.com slash path and present. So please do visit that and uh, support if you find this beneficial. And then uh, feel free to share this with everyone who you think might like it. All right, y'all. One love. Salam I mean, one of the ways I have found myself uh, trying to just smooth readers and listeners into, into his world is to, is to say, well, you know, you've heard of Rumi and you've heard of Atar and you've heard of these greats and Ibn Arabi. Well, you know, what was happening um, 100 and 150 years before they came? They didn't just kind of drop out of, out of nowhere, although in some sense they did mm -hmm. drop out of nowhere from the unseen, that is true. But um, they're also working and living in a certain milieu, especially the Persianate authors. And uh, the immediate backdrop for that is, um, is, is about 100 years of activity, which we call the Mazhab Ishq, mm -hmm. 70 to 100 years. And that's associated with the names of uh, Ahmad al-Ghazali, the brother of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. And then other authors in that tradition, uh, the most, um, in my opinion, uh, the most important, but being Enel Khuzat, who was the student of Ahmad al-Ghazali. So Enel Khuzat belongs to the generation that was just before, you know, um, the uh, activity of authors that we know quite a bit about. Um, and uh, he... He died at the age of 34, so he was a young, he was very young when he died. And one time, uh, a great scholar of Persian literature once said to me, you know, had Enoch Wazad lived longer, there would have been nothing left for anyone else to do. And, you know, with every kind of exaggeration, there, there, is, there is a certain element of truth in that, and I'm coming to discover that more and more. So, he was the student of Ahmad al-Ghazali, as I mentioned, and he was an avid follower of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali too, whom he didn't meet, but he used to read his books and uh, you know in that context uh, when he where he grew up 12th century Hamadan he'd be reading you know he was he, he was reading books in rational theology um, he fell into a period of uh, intellectual crisis and in his in his early 20s and uh, Muhammad al-Ghazali's books rescued him he says from just you know getting too caught up in this dualistic kind of rationalistic thinking and it really hurt him and uh, he was a genius for sure he had uh, already at the age of 20 written some some very sophisticated books his most important arabic book he wrote in three days and uh, it traveled it had a very long life in the muslim world even ibn arabi cites it so we know that it went from east to west and it was cited into the even into the 19th and 20th century and so so on the intellectual level everyone you know he's kind of more associated with this philosophical genius that he had and um he also was, uh, in addition to that, a profound visionary. So that's where I think his, great, his greatest contribution comes in. It's when he takes that intellectual training that he has, and he was a legal judge too, so he has all of this knowledge of Islamic law and things like this, and he tries to give you an explanation of the way things are from the perspective, not just of a realized intellectual but most of his writing is taking place from the perspective of God. Mm. So, and he makes that very clear in his writings that, you know, there are, you have, you have, you're following Islam, he says. He says, don't think that's Islam. He says, that's Islam in Majawzi. It's metaphorical Islam. There's something else. There's another, the, the, on God's, from God's perspective, the Islam that he sees, the unity and oneness that come from him, that's what I'm after. So once we've understood where this, this man stands in this um, tradition, 
you see that he's doing many things that are unique, at least in writing. He is the first author in the tradition to uh, write extensively about the Nur Muhammadi. It's, it, the, the tradition precedes him, of course, going back to Sahna Tustari and others. But Ayn Khuzad is the first person to really take it to its logical conclusions mm-hmm. and write about it explicitly in a way that was just, it's never done before and in the Persian language. So um, uh, not, not really conventional. He's, he's crafting a new language. He has a very unique way of speaking. His, his style of uh, communication is very unique. He also is the author in the tradition following Halaj, whom he loved a lot, mm-hmm. and Ahmad al-Ghazali too, who sees the fallen nature of the devil as a very positive symbol. And he writes the most extensively about that. Tawheed al Yes. And the, la- the last thing about Ibn Quzat, which people are usually not aware of, is that he was a social commentator mm-hmm. on his, um, in his own context, Saudi government, and he was somebody who uh, had a problem with corruption at the, at the level of government. That's what put him, he got killed, Omid Safi has shown, not for any ideas of his, but because he criticized the government and he was a very influential judge. So what we have are, we have a hundred, almost over 160 letters of his, 159 letters or so, that have survived in three big volumes of him corresponding with his students, not only imparting spiritual advice, but also speaking about the, his times, criticizing rulers, for stealing money from the poor. His big thing was charity for the poor. Mm-hmm. He was very big on that. So you get this really rounded picture of this man who, you know, the writings that have come down to us, they, they happen over a, an 11 or 12 year period. And he seems to cover almost everything, you know, all, and he does it in, in a way that's very unique. So by way of an introduction to him, what I would say is, you know, if, if you want like a who's who of the 12th century, I think this man, he embodies all of these different styles and modes and then gives his own perspective on things as really a foremost sage and seer in the Islamic tradition. Yeah, there's so many places to go. So, I mean, <laughs> yes. I think it's interesting. You say that, and yet there's been so much interest historically in the West with Rumi, mm-hmm. some with Hafiz, Saadi, a yeah, few of the yeah. Persian poets, yeah. understandably, and with some of the metaphysicians, like Ibn mm-hmm. Arabi, mm-hmm. a few others, but mainly Ibn Arabi. Uh, why do you think Ayn Kuzat has been more uh, neglected? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, 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 the main reason for it, uh, it's, it's a textual reason. So his, his books were not available in critical editions, you know, nice Persian Arabic editions, until the 1950s, when one scholar, Afif Husayran, a Lebanese scholar, uh, spent years editing them and putting them into nice editions. So after that period, then people started recognizing him. Otherwise, you know, if if an author remains in manuscript form, no one's going to know about him. So Rumi, Hafiz, many of these other authors were very fortunate in that their writings were translated into German in the 1700s, 1800s, and then through many different traditions in um, American literature, transcendentalist movement, and other things. In India, there were also a lot, lot of interest amongst the British colonial officers in, in their writings. They read German usually, and they read English, and they were good Persianists too. So their own tradition, it, the, you know, the reception of Rumi and all of these authors today comes from a certain uh, Western appreciation of these authors for several hundred years. Whereas Ayn al-Khuzat's relatively new, you know, 1954, breaks out into the scene, and, and a lot of Iranian scholars have written about him. But I think one of the reasons why he's not, we don't know much about him, is because he's one of those authors who's so forbidding in so many ways mm-hmm. that it's kind of like Ibn Arabi because, you know, some of the earliest scholarship in Ibn Arabi, like Afifi wrote this book in English, and after writing a whole big book on Ibn Arabi and spending years, you know, writing about him, he said, you know, I still don't really think I've understood what Ibn Arabi's thinking about. Yenu Khuzat is like that. It takes, it takes a very long time to read him and to and to situate him, you know, in there's, there's he's the author. I've never seen an author, for example, who cites more Quran on any page than Ibn Khuzat. He and it's, in fact he weaves the Quran so much into his prose that you you think to yourself it's as if he lives literally in the Quran, like Sheikh Al Alawi says, you know that the um, um, or that the Quran has mixed with our flesh and our blood, you know. And Sheikh Al Alawi has a poem in Tazajah, Bidamina wa 
It's completely just everything. Mm-hmm. Our sinews, our bones, our, our blood, it's all Quran. You pointed out two um, you know, topics of his mm-hmm. thought that are particularly unique in yeah. Islamic history. And that is the Nun Muhammadiyah. Yes. And then the second one is the Iblisology. Yes. So yes. let's talk about the Nun Muhammadiyah uh-huh. first. Uh-huh. Um, what does that mean by way of introduction for those that aren't yes. familiar with that concept? And then how does Ayn Kuzad, mm-hmm. uh, what does he say about it? How yes. That? Yeah, well, he, you know, he, um, uh, the, the long and the short of it is that we can call his view, we call him which is a, a name that comes in the tradition. He doesn't use that word himself. He's called a Muhammad Parast, a real adorer of the Prophet, almost a worshiper, even somebody mm-hmm. who really, you Reveres. know, reveres him at a at a level that it's it's you just feel ashamed when you read him. How mm-hmm. you know how 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 short one falls in their love for the Prophet. And what he says is he says he starts with several basic. He comes to this problem from many angles. He says, just wait, stop, and just think about what has happened here. <laughs> he goes, God picked a person to hold his word in himself. So he says, how can God, who's pure light, transmit himself to anything other than pure light? If he was dark or some kind of tenebrous human state, even even a little bit, it cannot contain that light. So he goes, he goes that means... This is pure light that's receiving the Qur'an. And then he starts giving verses from the Qur'an to demonstrate why the Prophet is light. Right? It says, it's, it speaks about uh, you know, t- uh, following God and the nur that has come, that, that he has sent down. You know, Khuzah says, what do you think that nur is? And he says, don't think it's arms and skin and, and, and feet. That's not nur. Nur is something else. So in the Islamic tradition, there is there, there's a very firm doctrine. It's, it's, it has been developed to great extent by the likes of Ibn Arabi and many others the first thing that God created was the light of the Prophet which is which is to say that's the first instance in which God turns his face to the created order the first entity that emerges from that in the mirror of creation which God sees himself in is the light of the Prophet and so Enoch Hosad says if this light is if that is the light that has been revealed and it came to us in a human form then we owe it to ourselves to follow that light and then to use the guidance that comes from that light to go back to the source of all lights God, Nur al-Anwar he calls him also Nur al-Wujud the light of being but now that introduces many questions one of the things that comes up in Enoch's way of thinking is given that the Prophet has this light and he corresponds to the function of God's guidance in the world what can we say about the darkness that's in the world the obvious fact that there is there are things other than light in the world and he says well that is, makes perfect sense because whenever there's light there's going to be a shadow as there is right now in this room mm-hmm. you know? whenever there's light there's going to be a shadow and he says that shadow that is cast by that light he says, you, you refer to him as the, the devil. You refer to him as Iblis. He's nothing other than the shadow of that light. And by doing this, he doesn't posit Iblis as somehow, uh, you know, um, a source of evil. The Islamic tradition doesn't see Iblis as a source of evil anyway. The word shar is never used as, uh, for Iblis as evil. He's, you know, the nafs is evil in the Quran, but not either. Iblis is just a trickster who, you know, like one of my teachers said, like the rest of us, he has his problems. <laughs> and, um, but he has a function. He has a very important role to play in the cosmic economy of things. And Enel Quzat, seeing that Iblis has this, this role um, in the, the grand scheme of things, seeks on one level, like many of the authors before him, to exonerate him from the blame that was thrown at him. So he says, in one passage, he says, if you knew the story of Iblis, it would become extremely dear to you. And it turns out that the story of Iblis is nothing other than your story and my story. And he makes that very clear. He says, this man who was cast out of paradise for a little while, he's seeking like the rest of us to go back. He's an image of us who loves God. And he says, actually, Iblis is much better than us because, because we, we love God, yes, 
Iblis loves God so much that he's even willing to take the blame from God and kind of be the fall guy, <laughs> metaphysically speaking, for all of this uh, existence to emerge. So there's one beautiful passage where he says, Iblis's sin was that he loved God. And Muhammad, والسلام, his sin was that God loved him. And by virtue of that quote-unquote sin, God's love for him, the Prophet, it's his responsibility to bear the mercy of God to the world. So the Prophet's function in the world is to spread the mercy. Iblis has another function. Because in order for mercy to exist, in order for guidance to exist, in this realm of shadows and lights, you need to have the opposite. Right, so yeah. You so, need the misguidance. Right, yeah. Rumi has a line talking about, you know, a king who has a kingdom, a great king, right? He has gifts and robes yeah. of honor. Yeah. And he also has the guillotine. Yes, and the, that's and right. The, the, the prison cell. Yeah. But it's all for the same reason. Exactly. It's, it is, exactly. It is He's out not of a love king. for the kingdom. That's right, that's it's right. Love for it's the, beautiful. And I think you told me before, correct me if I'm wrong, but... This really stuck with me. Uh, a line of in a Kozad, something to the effect of talking about Iblis, and of course, the foundational Quranic story of Iblis mm -hmm. is, you know, he was a jinn who was a mm -hmm. great worshiper, yeah, great worshiper of God, you know, constantly in service to God, and then, you know, Allah creates Adam mm -hmm. and commands yeah. the angelic beings to prostrate, mm -hmm. and they do. Illa Iblis, except yeah, exactly Iblis. Like, yes, yes. And, his, and, and there was something, if I remember correctly, you told me that Anu Khazad puts it that outwardly Allah mm -hmm. said, That's Bow. right, that's right. But inwardly, that's right, exactly. He, he whispers to Anu Khazad, don't exactly. This is, this is precisely what he says. Exactly. You have a very good memory because that, that would have been a couple of years ago. Yes, he says to him, he says, he says the outward command was he says to him, uh, you know, do do this, right? But but behind that command, there is the divine will, which is to tell him, you know, don't do it. And so Enochuzat says, he goes, what was he supposed to do? He was just fulfilling his command. So he takes the whole Tawheed of Iblis motif to a whole new level because he's not just a fallen lover, right? But he's somebody who's compelled by God, uh, by his love for him and his love for him, to do the things that he should do. Now, Enochoza, given his philosophical background, he, he has this explanation that human beings are compelled into freedom. And he's following Ibn Sina in this regard. Human beings are compelled to act freely. It, 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 it resolves many problems intellectually, right? Because you're thrown, yeah, you're, you're, you're compelled to act. And Enochoza says, that, well, that's how we're morally responsible, right? We're morally responsible because God has thrown us into the realm of freedom and He's saying, do, act. And He says, but that same imagery also applies to Iblis. Don't think He's somehow out of that compulsion. The only difference was that He had to compel, He was compelled to act according to His nature. Our nature is freedom. It's, to, it's, to, it's, it's like fire, He says, fire just must burn. That's what it does. Our nature is to choose. Because Iblis's nature is to love. And a lover essentially cannot disobey the beloved because that his nature is just a love. So he's a perfect model for us. He says only the Prophet is above Iblis in terms of the model for because God's eye is on him. Wow. Right? Now, one of the things that he says, and this really, like, so this just shows the, the, the deep ingenuity of his thinking. He says in, in, in one passage where, you know, he rethinks and reframes the rights of Islam on every level explaining what prayer really is, what fasting really is. And he gets into these amazing discussions and he says, he says, you think that zakat is something that we have to pay? Yes, we have to pay it if you meet certain requirements in Islamic law. The, the zakat is mandatory for those who are earning income. He goes, but every wealth that, that is earned is zakat-able, right? The, the alms tax has to be paid. And he goes, what's the greatest wealth? God says, I was a hidden treasure and I love to be known. So God himself, being that hidden treasure, uh, made himself known. And Inukuzat says, there's a big zakat on that one. And that zakat that has to be paid, that alms tax, is mercy. And the, who's going to distribute that mercy? The Prophet. 
the Prophet He is the distributor of the mercy, which is why he's in the Quran, Rahmatun Alameen, mercy to the worlds. But in doing the distribution of the mercy, he needs a, he needs a little bit of assistance. And again, Iblis comes up there. Right? He's going to come up, he's going to show people, you know, your, your job is to also, you know, offset. His job is to offset the guidance. Because then when you have guidance and misguidance coming together, that's when you can actually have choice yes. and guidance. Sure. So he's kind of a necessary clog in this world. <laughs> the, 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 you know, things can become manifest. Because if there's yes. no scarcity, no one can ever be generous. They can exactly. never manifest. Exactly, right? right. Because yes. if you are, Beautiful. or if there's no uh, uh, danger, Yes. No one can manifest bravery. Exactly. Right. right. So right. It has to Precisely. Be, it exactly. Has to be these things. Exactly. So what? What would? Because I, I can already uh, <laughs> feel you know certain. Yeah. What's up? Oh, it's fine. It's fine. I can already yeah. feel you know certain Muslims, not only Muslims, Christians, uh -huh, and other uh -huh. people of faith cringing. Yes. Yeah. At, chorus of the whole. And a reframing of the devil <laughs> positive life. So yeah. what would I know that? What do you think? How would he respond? <laughs> You know, yeah, well, you know, um, he, he would, you know, he doesn't, I, I mean, I mean, he takes it to such a level when you read him sometimes you think to yourself, oh my God, this is, this is insane. Like at one point, I, like, a few times I was thinking, should I even put this in the book? Like, like, cause I have to be honest, I have to put it and explain it, you know? So in, in one passage, he says, he's reporting a discussion that's taking place between two of his masters and the master says, you know, the devil's doing his job. Should we send salat, salawat on him? Or should we say, Should we say, God bless him and grant him peace? Or should we say, God curse him? And, the, and they're, they're debating this. And Qudas reporting this. And then the Shaykh says, No, you should still say, God curse him. Because, and then Enoqudha comes in, he says, Yes, because his khordan, his gaza, his food is curses. It's it. He wants that. So, Enochozah would say, if you're affirming the badness of the devil, like in let's say Catholic theology, where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, uber badness, right? <laughs> the devil is, right? Um, or in in, in in you know in any normal Islamic theological framework, right? right. The devil is not a source of uh, you know right. guidance through misguidance. There's no discussion like that. There's just dalal and that's it. He says, but you're allowed to say that. In fact, you should say that. Don't. Don't uh, mistake the relationship of the devil to you and to God and to the Prophet. Just see him for what he is, mm -hmm. right? If you and this is this is the advice. If he was here today, he would say he would say you have to see him for what he is. Mm -hmm. You can hate him. Mm -hmm. You can say he's going to go to hell or whatever you want to say about him. Um, but you, like every lover, should be able to see the good in everything. And surely there is something positive that you can say about the devil. If he was pure evil, he wouldn't exist, right? The the, op, the pure privation is non-existence. There must be something good about him. And now, one image that he gives to to take it home in a more concrete way, he plays on many different images. One image that he has is the imagery of the face, the beautiful face, and this this kind of you know points up the necessity of the devil. In this in this uh, cosmic um, uh, economy of things, he says, if you look at a beautiful face, so think of Persian. They love beautiful, you know, round face. Mm -hmm. And he says, this this white face that 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 you can love, mm -hmm. uh, it needs an index. Otherwise, how are you going to see it? It's if it's so, mm -hmm. so beautiful, mm -hmm. so it needs a mole. Mm -hmm. Now that mole, all of a sudden, it's a symbol of beauty in Persian poetry in many cultures, mm -hmm. but also it points. It takes you to the face. It's the index, right? It's there. And he goes, that mole is like the light of the... That's, that's the Prophet. That the Prophet corresponds to the mole. He has many different ways of speaking about it. This is the most standard way. And when he, cause why? Because when you've seen the mole, you've seen the face. You go to the mole, it takes you to the face. But what's a beautiful face without some hair? Right? So, this, these beautiful black locks, jad, you know... Frame the face. Exactly. Frames the face shows it to you, shows you its beauty, but hides the face too. Mm -hmm. And he says, in order for that beautiful face to be there, you need the mole and you need the hair. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly, so he's saying, if you love beauty, you'll be able to put all things in their proper place. Mm -hmm. And if you love God, then you'll be able to look past 
any and all things insofar as they can take you to him. Once you're there, you know, Iblis is not necessarily a problem for you. But if you see things as Enochuzadas from God's perspective, then Iblis, as he says, he's a, he's a dear friend and an intimate. He calls him the, the, um, the, 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 the leader of leaders. <laughs> so he's, the, he's the leader of the fallen one. That's what he said. The leader of the fallen ones. He is the guide of all of those who've fallen in the eyes of God. And we all fall in the eyes of God. Who's perfect? We all fall. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's clear too that like Iblis is a perfect servant of God. Like yeah. he has a role yeah. that, that's necessary for creation. Yeah. Right? He's playing his role right and exact. Yeah, exactly. And he's done nothing wrong. It's so, it's so um, fascinating. Yes, but yes. it is. He's essentially saying that, and is it was it Anukuzat who points out that I've heard there's some scholars that mention that like because Iblis was such a muahed that he affirmed divine unity mm -hmm. that even though there is outwardly a command to prostrate. Yeah. He refused to prostrate to other than God. Yeah. Exactly. Because think of it, we can't yeah. prostrate. That's right. right. That's right. We can't prostrate to other than God. That's yeah. not permissible exactly. for a believer. Yeah. So he was saying like, yeah. I would rather That's endure precise. being yeah. the outcast yeah. and yeah. the accursed yes. than prostrate to other exactly. than God. Exactly. He says in one poem, he says, he says, you threw me into the ocean, you, and, um, or this is Atar, I think, where he says, you threw me in the ocean, tied my hands behind my back and said, and said you know, um, try to save yourself and swim. Right? Or another one, he said, you douse um, all this oil on me and you say to me, or you throw, I, 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 I jump in the ocean with my hands tied behind my back and you say to me, be careful, don't get wet. <laughs> right? So he's, he's, he's I'm, I, I've done, I'm doing my job. And, you know, it's out of also in the Islamic tradition, you know, if you remember in the, in the, during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, um, the Prophet asks Sayyidina Ali, he says to him, show me my name so I can cross it out. Mm -hmm. And Sayyidina Ali says, no. He actually disobeyed the Prophet. Mm -hmm. But that's called ta'adduban, right? It's out of, yes. uh, you know, adab and love mm -hmm. and respect that you're not going to uh, disobey the Prophet. You're not going to obey the Prophet because you don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, he says, I'm not going to cross your name out. And that's pretty much what Iblis is doing here. Yeah. You know, it's a, a very similar. He's like, no, I'm not going to take away your right and bow to this you know, clay creation of yours. Mm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and if it earns me wrath, he says, he says, he says, people, um, no one wants to take the assault on their neck. I'll gladly take it. Give it to me. Give it to me. I'll, I'll, I will do it for everybody. And at least, actually, he emerges in Enochozat's writings as uh, not only a fallen lover, but a real model of selflessness. He's totally selfless. Even if it means distance from God, he goes, it doesn't matter. I will. I will do it. If everyone else goes to heaven and I don't, that's fine. I've, I've done my job and I know I've always been true to my beloved. So that's Enel Khuzat for you in a nutshell. You know, he really this takes these up, things I wonder if I don't know if he says this, but it kind of crossed my mind too that like, you know, the idea too, like I will lead astray Basically, like to have a jealous, yeah. like such a love of God, yeah. like anyone who truly loves you will not be, yeah. will not be led astray by yes. me. Yes. So I'm going to help you sort out who's it, who. Like precisely, right. you know. Actually, that's. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, he has a number of passages where he says, "Iblis is there, so to speak, to separate the men from the boys," and he actually uses a beautiful image of the moth and the um, the parvati, the yeah, the, the moth and. Um, you know the the thorns, the thorns, uh, on a, on a rose bed. Mm -hmm. So he says that you know, or sorry, the parvana, the um, the nightingale, excuse me, the yes. nightingale and the and the rose uh, rose bed. He says that every nightingale is a claim claimer of the lover of the rose, mm -hmm. right? Because but when you go to the rose, there's thorns, and so these nightingales they jump into the thorns into the rose, but when they notice the thorns, they fly away. And then he goes, but only the true lover will actually jump right in, knowing that they're going to die, mm -hmm. and they'll take it. Mm -hmm. And so Enochuzad, that's, mm -hmm. that's his image of love. When he comes to Iblis, he says, Iblis is a watchman. He's a watchman for those false claimants mm -hmm. who are trying to get to God's court. Mm -hmm. And he's there to stop them and says to them, no, 
if you're not a true lover, I'm gonna, you're going to stop right here. Only true lovers can go past that door. And he actually has all these beautiful images where... <laughs> and his, he, his function is ihwa, misguidance. Right. Right? For to that distinguish reason. what yeah. guidance is. And yeah, exactly. it's, it's like he's saying, I love God so much yeah. that I will be the most distant, the most incursed, yeah. the most despised. Yeah. Everyone in creation yeah. will hate me. But yeah. I, I am going to do my job impeccably and yes. not care about what anybody says about me. Mm-hmm. And I will show who's the real lover and who's not. Yeah. Who's really, you know. Yes. Um, yes. Yes, exactly. Lover. You know, Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov has mm-hmm. this beautiful section where the devil kind of gives like a soliloquy almost. Mm-hmm. And it comes actually very close to what Enoch mm-hmm. says. And basically this devil, he's he the devil's saying, you know, he says, he goes, what I really want to do, I just want to be reincarnated in the body of a 250-pound butcher's wife so I can light candles and pray to God. That's all I want. He goes, he says, he says, he says you know, I've been thrown into this into this mess for reasons I don't know why. Mm. And he goes, but it, I know, I think I know why. It's because every journal needs a criticism column. And he goes, so my, my job is to, you know, be, again, the fall guy, right? And if, if that's what I have to do, fine. But but that's the but what I, what I would much rather do is to, you know, do what all of you guys are doing, praying and and, and worshiping God freely. <laughs> yeah, and that's that kind of the true lover. Yes. You know, even if the beloved casts them out yeah. or pushes them away yeah. or slams the door in their face, they will never exactly. be deterred at all from their love exactly. because it's know, not about what they want. It's yeah. not about what they want. And remember, one of the, so it's not about what they want. It's about what God wants. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's why uh, Halal says, Akhtaru Allah, Akhtaru, right? Ma takhtaru akhtaru. I, will, I don't want, I want not to want. I want yeah. what you want. Yeah. Because what God wants is the best possible want. Yeah. Not what we want. Um, but we have to also remember, for those who hate Iblis so much, you know, one thing that we can all agree on is that at minimum, he's better than an atheist. He believes in God. He's a believer, right? He may not be and the he's best. Following believer. the commandment too. He's, he's following the commandment. He's he's actually like that's what really struck me. You know, it's amazing because in the Quran, when he's cast out of paradise, there is no questioning. That's the thing that really before mm-hmm. I encountered Ayn Qudrat as a graduate student, when I used to read the Quran, I thought to myself, that's kind of interesting because he doesn't ever say to God, "Why did you do this?" God says to him, uh, you are going to be cast out now. And he says, He just says, okay, then put me off until the day that they're all raised up. He doesn't even like try to defend himself. There's no self-defense. There's no self-defense. He's just like, all right, bring it on. Does Ayn al-Khazad mention that his response about Adam and in, 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 in yeah, response, sur- you know, I'm better than him. Yeah, I, surprisingly, or maybe not, perhaps not surprisingly, mm-hmm. Enoch doesn't draw on that from, from from what I can recall, not even once. That verse doesn't even show up one time. Whereas in later authors, Atar, Rumi, uh, Muhammad Iqbal even, they're going to draw on that. that That's the diabolical, um, evil, analogically reasoning side of Iblis, right? I'm better than him. And so... Yeah, I'm curious. And I think you were the one that told me that uh, Rumi disliked that reading of Iblis. Yes, yes, right? yeah, precisely. Oh, so Rumi has a beautiful uh, tale... Um, in the Masnavi, it's it's uh it's about Muawiyah, the the Khalifa Muawiyah, the fourth Caliph of, of of Islam, where he and you know he's known characteristically in the tradition for hidden shrewdness. Mm-hmm. No one could pull a fast one on him. Right. So Rumi picks him on purpose, right? Because, and Muawiyah is the Caliph, and the time for the Fajr prayer comes, and as the Caliph, he must go to the Masjid and lead the prayer, mm-hmm. or be there for the prayer, and so. Um, He's remiss in, in waking up, and so all of a sudden there's some creature, character, person that enters into his house. And he says, Ruby he frames it beautifully. It's like coming in the corner, and mm-hmm. there's this kind of, you know, hiding. It's, it's, you really get this beautiful image of this kind of, you know, sheepish person. And he says to him, sneaky. Look, it's the, yeah, sneaky. He says to him, It's the time to pray. And then he, he starts giving him hadith and all kinds of you know, things about the meritorious nature of prayer. And Muawiyah is like, wait a second. You're not the person who calls to good. You're, you're the opposite. You're the bad guy. You're the one who's supposed to tell me to not pray. What are you doing here? And he never 
um, accepts all of the arguments that Iblis and, 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 and Rumi puts on the tongue of Iblis in the poem uh, one of the most beautiful defenses of the Tawheed of Iblis even though he doesn't accept it mm. he says you know I was the first of the lovers I used to walk with the God in paradise he used to t- uh, pat my head in springtime and when I was a young student I read this I actually just wept because it was so beautiful the language the imagery the way he frames him as this you know, total, just like a child being taken mm. s- such good care of. Why would I? F- I've never forgotten about my first home. He's going, mm. and Muawiyah is sitting there listening, and he says, "No, no, 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 no. Some there's something is up." Finally, by the end of the tale, he um, he you know f- uh, you know cracks under the pressure, so to speak, and he says he says, "No, fine. I admit that I was up to no good. Mm. What I was trying to do was to get you to go to the masjid and pray." Because I knew that if you missed the prayer in the masjid, you'd make a greater toba to God. You'd, you'd, re- you'd repent and you'd become closer to God by having actually missed the prayer. So I was trying to get you to take the lesser of two goods in order so that I can, I can keep my function of misguidance. And this, so this is Rumi. You know, it can be read as a kind of critique of the a defense of the Tawheed of Iblis is that, is that you, know, you, know, you see him as a fallen lover and, and these are the arguments uh, for why they, it can be, but don't be fooled. This is a part of his trick, mm-hmm. and so Rumi will con- he'll maintain those 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 dualities in keeping with the images that he's always drawing on uh, in in his in his poetry. Mashallah. Well, um, you've been generous with your time, and I know you Thank have you. a limited amount of time. So, in closing, uh, because of course we could talk for <laughs> much longer, but we want to read, and I know you're working on two research projects. Yeah. So, will you share what those are, yes. and then when they will be released? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, um, uh, one of them, it's, a, it's an Arabic uh, edition and a translation of uh, this, this uh, book by Inul Quzat that I mentioned, the one that he wrote when he was 24 in three days, called Zubdat al-Haqqaiq. And it's the first Sufi exposition, the, fir- the, the first philosophical exposition of Sufism. And uh, it's an amazing book. It's an incredible book because he takes you to, um, uh, you know, through logical analysis, through all the stages of reasoning, um, but then he takes you to a stage that he calls he calls it the stage beyond the intellect, following Ghazali, Tor Ma Wara Al the stage beyond the intellect. And he says there are many stages. So that book it's about um, the intellectual life and also the mystical life, and how the two uh, can come together, but how there is the need to also become a lover, and to taste God, not just with your mind, but with your entire being. So that book is, is supposed to come out in the Library of Arabic Literature series, um, and we're, we're hoping that it comes out by 2021. You know, these things have a life of their own. Sure. The, other, the other book, um, it's an anthology of Enel Kozat's writings for uh, State University of New York Press. That's, um, it basically presents uh, over 600 passages in his writings, uh, the- thematically arranged and, and with you know, facilitating commentary. And so we cover, try to cover all of the main themes in his writings mm-hmm. to show how they all kind of come together. So you'll get, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get the passages in there about his moral theory, his understanding of human agency, and uh, that'll be, you know, th- that'll be the ground for, you know, his his exposition of Iblis. And you'll you'll also learn, for example, in this book, that Enokuzal was also the first author to again theoretically speak about imagination, the world of imagination. And in a very explicit way, tamassul using the Quranic uh, uh, reference, and so the book tries to you know just draw attention to the fact that this is such an important thinker in the tradition, and uh, his unique language, the major themes that he takes, and many of the firsts that that mm-hmm. that, that that I think should be uh, imputed to him are there, and then also how he uh, you know tried to explain the nature of beauty. He has a lot to say about contemplating God in forms. And he says at the highest level, the beauty that we're after can never match God's self-contemplation. Again, taking it to God's perspective. So the book ends with with Enochuzah's um, meditations on beauty and it begins with even his own autobiographical statements and his own spiritual experiences and his own encountering of the Prophet. And I, sh- I, should, I should end as he does uh, his famous book, Tamhidat, with the account that he gives of the Prophet and of his meeting with the Prophet. Mm. So Tamhidat is Enel Khuzat's um, most famous book in Persian. It's over 300 pages. 
and and it's just written from a very drunken state, and it's incredible. The late Leonard Lewis, and uh, you know, he describes it as you know, just he he has such a beautiful description of it. It's it's poetry, it's prose, it's got all, it's got this drunken style. It's sober, it's rational, it's philosophical, it's poetic, all at once, and you really get this sense of just how how he even wrote it. We're not even sure. It's really a remarkable book. But towards the end of the book, Enokozat, he relates a dream that a friend of his has. He had lived a very intense visionary life. And he would have visions uh, of the Prophet. His friends would have visions and they'd share them. And they'd receive guidance from each other like this. And it was a very, very uh, unusual set of circumstances that he'd be writing under. And the, 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 the book ends like this. The Prophet communicates to Enokozat through his friend. He says to him, you know, I've... Let me see this book that you're holding, <laughs> that, that, you, that you're writing. So Enokozat's writing with Tamhidat, he gives him the book. This book, it's the first metaphysical book in, in the Persian language, I think. I think it's, it's fair to say that. And um, the Prophet says, you let out, you're letting out too many secrets. Stop. Stop now. And then Enokozat says that the minute the Prophet told me to stop letting out secrets and to cease writing this book, I stop writing this book and I'm waiting now for the next set of instructions. And that's literally how the book ends. <laughs> He's a man who lived with the Prophet in the prophetic form, following his footsteps at every single moment, even to the point of being under the command of writing from him and ceasing to do so when he told him to do so. So that collection of his works that you're working on, yeah. is that going to be published before or after? The, um, the goal... Uh, the, originally, I was hoping that the Arabic edition would come out first, the Zubdat, and then this one, because because you have the more sober, you know, uh, and then the more drunken one. But at this stage, you know, every day I show up in the office and I kind of just have to let things take their natural. So I had a whole plan of how things would work out, and clearly, you know, I, I it's not, it's not working out that way. In all likelihood, I think the the, the Sunni press book will come out first, but. 2021, 2022, I'm hoping that the two of them will come. So is it kind of structured in the same way that Chittik's Sufi Path yes. of Love or Sufi Path of Knowledge yes. are with yeah. many passages That's right. dramatically yeah. introduced and contextualized? This is exactly what I tried to do. That's great. I love those And but, but I have to say, and I, I told this to Dr. Chittik uh, one time when I began trying to do, do these chapters like that, um, that, that is a very difficult thing to do. He makes it look so easy, but it is really hard to... You know, piece it all together and develop a narrative around these passages and to contextualize yeah. them and, and, and to and to do it in such a way that you're there but you're kinda not there and you're all you're really doing is just facilitating his words. But one of the things I really hope that comes out in the book is the the beautiful nature of his prose, the way he talks and his poetry, just the way he his method of communication. He'll say things like he'll he'll say things like you think you know the Quran? You don't know the Quran, and and he'll and he'll tell you why you don't know the Quran. That's another thing. He's also the first author to develop a very unusual theory of the Quranic detached letters, which I've never seen in an author before um, uh, before him, and some after him who followed him, taken from him. He says that the Quran, you know, in in a number of its chapters, there are these mysterious detached letters. Yes. Exactly. Enukozad says, he says, these are the detached letters that fell from the Divine Presence and they got stuck. And then the rest of the words that fell down, they coagulated into words. And that's what we call the Quran. It's the detached letters in the Quran. He goes, but in their primal state, they're all detached letters, the whole Quran. And when you go beyond that, they come from little dots. And when you go on there, they, they ultimately devolve in nothingness. And so he has a, a kind of an anthropology and a cosmology, uh, excuse me, a cosmology of the Quran, of how it comes from the divine word and how, it's, how it kind of fragments into the cosmic order. Mm -hmm. And again, there's only one heart that can receive that revelation. So, and that's the Prophet. That's beautiful. And we should end there. There's one like last question. Yeah. Hopefully, you answer <laughs> right. quickly. Because yes, yes, yes. It came up when you were talking. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that Anup Ghazad is a direct student of Ahmed Ghazali, yes. the brother of uh, Ahmed Ghazali. And many people don't know, especially those that are familiar with the the Arabic, mm -hmm. Arabocentric kind mm -hmm. of Islamic tradition, or that Ahmed Ghazali, by this mashabi ish, he's actually celebrated as the greater oh, brother. Yes, he, yes, but by he far. Didn't get, yeah. Caught in the intellectual crisis. Oh, yeah. He went straight That's right. Yeah, from the very beginning. 
And yeah. if I remember correctly, he also has similar, uh, Ahmed Ghazali has similar statements about Iblis, is yes, that right? Yes, 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 yes. He also, he, he was in the tradition of, of, uh, of, the, of the, you know, seeing Iblis as a fallen lover. And, um, and his own teachers also were in that tradition. Yeah, Ain al-Quzat has a, um, he has, he had a few teachers, some very interesting people. He had this one sheikh, Baraka Hamadani, who he met before he met um, Ahmad Ghazali. And this was an illiterate sheikh. He was, he literally couldn't read or write. He, he knew enough of the Quran to read the prayers. Ain al-Quzat says, he goes, but he knew more Quran than I do. Because his entire being was just effaced. Ahmad Ghazali was his formal teacher. And in, his, in an autobiographical statement, Ain al-Quzat says uh, that Ahmad Ghazali, Ghazali came to Hamadan because he had a lodge probably in Hamadan where he used to instruct students. Ain al-Quzat says, for 20 days I did khidmat to him. I served him. And, the, and then he says he just had this major opening. The eye of his basira opened. And then... He was never the same after that. And of course, uh, in the English language, we're very fortunate in that Joseph Lombard, mm-hmm. our colleague and friend, he has a wonderful book on Ahmad Ghazali that was published in 2016, which is, a, which is an excellent introduction to Ahmad Ghazali, the metaphysics of love, mazhab ishq all of these things. All right, Jazakallah khair. Thank you. Uh, well, I know you've written, I know you haven't published yet, but you do have a few articles on Ahmad Ghazali yes. that are published, right? Yeah. So we'll link to those yes, so that people course. who are listening can Happy, uh, happy to share them. Thank you. Thank you.